Our meditation this morning from Isaiah chapter 6. Religion had become an empty form. It was nothing but a mockery of God's holy ordinances. The people trusted in the flesh and they disdained God's word. Man defined worship was increasing And the entire nation had left its heritage of faith to drift into worldliness and unbelief. The rich were reveling in their luxury and the poor were being oppressed. Rulers were taking bribes. Justice was rare. And things were bad, simply said. The days in which Isaiah ministered were not good days. A day in which everything that was really good was regarded as bad, and everything that was bad was regarded as good. Politically and militarily, the nation had been disintegrating. It enjoyed little of the respect that it had on the international scene. But it was in these dark days that God raised up Isaiah, that prince of the prophets, and God gave him a message, a message that was uniquely suited to the day in which he lived, a day of discouragement for God's people that were in such a small minority who seemed to have even less influence. But the answer, the answer to the darkness in Isaiah's day was a vision of God. If the problems and the issues, and it doesn't take a great deal of spiritual acumen to see the parallels between the day of Isaiah and the day in which we live. And I would submit to you that if the answer to the problem of the darkness in Isaiah's day was a vision of God, a vision of Christ. So it is that that is the answer for our day as well. God revealed his glory first to the prophet and then that message spread. Today I want us to consider this vision Now, I recognize that this is a most familiar text. And there's always some risk for a preacher when he comes to a familiar text in the Bible. The danger, first of all, that the people might just close their ears because they're so familiar with what the text is saying. On the other hand, there's the temptation and the risk that the preacher may have to come up with something novel as he approaches this text that is so familiar. I tell my students often that in our business, there is no virtue in novelty. So I want nothing new to be said today. And notwithstanding the fact that this passage is well known to you, I trust that we can come to it with fresh eyes and open hearts to see its relevance in the day in which we live, a vision. 
And in this vision, Isaiah was looking in three different directions. He was looking up, he was looking in, and he was looking out. And I want us to do the same thing today. Where are we to look in times like these? Where are we to look? That's my theme today. That's my objective. Where are we to look in times like these? Three different perspectives. First of all, the upward look. And I say that looking up assures the soul. Looking up assures the soul that God is absolutely sovereign, that he is the King of kings, that he is the Lord of lords. God is absolutely sovereign. The earthly king was dead. It was in the year that King Josiah died that I saw the Lord. Josiah had done some good things, The nation came into some degree of economic prosperity during his days. There was a general peace in the land during the days of Uzziah. But when he was strong, Bible says that when he was strong, when he thought he was strong, he lifted up his heart. Remember what Uzziah did? He entered into the temple, taking the incense and infringing upon the duties of the priest. You do recall that Moses had made it very clear that the office of the king, when that king would come into the land, and when the priesthood would be established, that those two offices, those two ministries could never be combined. A king could not infringe upon priestly duties and a priest could not infringe upon kingly duties. Those were two offices that were absolutely separate one from the other. But Uzziah, when his heart was strong, he took the censer, that which belonged to the priest, and he entered into the sanctuary and God smote him with leprosy. And he stayed in that separated house until the day he died. And this is now a reference to the time of Uzziah's death. The king had failed miserably, and his failure destroyed every reason for hope, and it gave an uncertain future. Uzziah was not perfect, but at least he was a known factor. And now with the death of Uzziah, Jotham is going to come to the throne, What do we know about Jotham? What do the people know about Jotham? What did Isaiah, as it were, know about Jotham? An uncertain future. And in this time of uncertainty, in this time of uncertainty as what lay ahead, Isaiah looked up and Isaiah saw the Lord. The earthly king was judged for entering into the earthly sanctuary And now God in his grace was going to lift up Isaiah into the very heavenly sanctuary to look away from the things of time and circumstance to see the Lord himself. And he saw, I say, that God was absolutely sovereign. Earthly kings come and earthly kings go. But here is that one that sits forever. That sits forever upon 
the throne of heaven. God brings him to a place to show him himself. And he saw that the heavenly king, the earthly king was dead. But he saw the Lord sitting upon a throne. The heavenly king was glorious. He saw the Lord. And notice how the word Lord is spelled there. You know that the names of God, the titles of God, particularly in the Old Testament, were never used haphazardly. That the name of God, the title of God, was always part of the revelation of truth that the Lord was revealing. There's so much that we can learn about God as he reveals himself to us in his names and titles. And you have Lord here, sometimes spelled with all capitals. We'll see that in a moment. But here it's spelled with the small case, O-R-D. This is a title of God that always speaks of his mastership. It speaks of his ownership. It speaks of his authority. It speaks of his rule, if you will. He saw the Lord, the one who's the master, the one who's the king, who can accomplish all of his purposes. I saw the heavenly king. The earthly king was dead. But he sees now the Lord. He sees, if you will, Adonai. He sees that one who is the ruler, the master, the king of all. And it's not without significance that when we come to the New Testament scriptures, you remember in the Gospel of John, chapter 12, when the Lord Jesus is in another controversy with the religious rulers of his day, he makes reference to this vision of Isaiah. And the Lord Jesus says that when Isaiah saw that one lifted up upon the throne, he saw me. Jesus interprets this for us. It was Jesus. It was the second person of the Holy Trinity that Isaiah saw high and lifted up upon this throne. The mediatorial kingship of Christ all of his glory, all of his power, all of his authority. I saw the Lord. I saw the Lord, and I saw the Lord exalted. He was seated upon a throne. The throne is the symbol of authority, symbol of power, symbol of rule. And he sees the Lord seated. He sees the Lord seated. He was sitting. He was sitting. Not fretting not worrying about the circumstances upon the earth. Everything, everything was under control. I get the impression sometimes that there are some believers that get so frustrated and so taken up with all the troubles of the day that they they think God is somehow troubled as well, that God is pacing back and forth before the throne, what to do, what to do. No, God is not wondering what to do. God is not taken by what is happening. God has purposed the end from the beginning. Psalm 2 tells us exactly what God is doing. As he's seated upon the throne, as he sees the wickedness of man, as he sees all of the conspiracies against his Christ. Psalm 2 says that he's laughing. He's seated upon his throne and he has a good laugh at the folly of man's wickedness. Oh, he saw the Lord seated, under control. I think of that scene as well. Remember in Revelation chapter 4, 
as you have another description there of God upon the throne. And it speaks of the sea of glass, the sea of glass that's before the throne. Not going to all of the evidences of it, but let me just say that the sea, we see this in Daniel, we see in Revelation, represents the nations. It represents the nations, and as we see those nations, as we see the nations, the, the waves are billowing and it's in turmoil and it's stormy, rough waters. But all those nations before God, smooth as glass, smooth as glass, not a ripple because they're under the domain and under the control of Almighty God. He saw the Lord exalted. Heaven is my throne, the Lord says. The earth is my footstool. Thy throne is from everlasting to everlasting. Earthly kings come and earthly kings go, but here is this one. Here is this Lord. Here is this anointed one, the Christ to come, that is seated upon this authoritative throne, uninfluenced, unaffected, unaltered, unchanged by anything outside of himself. And he saw his train, he saw his royal robe. He saw his royal robe that was filling the temple, the long and the flowing garments of royalty, claiming every available space that Isaiah could see in this heavenly scene. God shares his glory with none, he reveals his glory. But there's no room, there was no room for any other display than that of the glorious God. As far as the eye could see, just the Lord's glory. And there's the real secret for us. Unless unless we can be convinced, unless that we are sure that Christ is King, that Christ is the owner of all, that Christ is the master of all, that Christ is the absolute monarch, unless we are sure of that, then we'll never have freedom from frustrations. We'll never have freedom from fears, from concerns, from anxieties in this old world. Oh, we see what we can see as we look around us. But it is for us to follow the eyes of Isaiah, to look up, to look up and to see even now seated upon that throne in heaven is our Christ, that one who is the King of kings, that one who is indeed the Lord of lords. So I say looking up assures the soul, first of all, that God is absolutely sovereign. But it also reveals to us, looking up, that worship is essential. The only proper response that we can give to the sight of Christ is to worship him. And the more we see him, the more we are conscious, the more we are conscious of the reality of God, the reality of Christ, the more we are going to give ourselves to that spiritual worship. How can we see him? If we can see this all the way through the scriptures, those that have a vision of God, those that have seen the Lord, 
affects them. In worship, Ezekiel saw the Lord and he fell prostrate upon his face. John on the Isle of Patmos saw the glorious Lord and he fell down as dead. There was worship. There was worship. And as Isaiah looks up, he sees, he sees these heavenly worshipers above it. Above it, not above the throne. No, none can be above the throne. But above those flowing robes that were filling every square inch of heaven. Above those robes stood the seraphim, these angelic creatures. The only time in Scripture that the seraphim are mentioned is here in this text. We know that the angels are ministering spirits. They're the agents of divine providence. We read elsewhere of the cherubim, those that were the guardians of God's holiness, the proclaimers of God's holiness, but only here. Only here do we have any reference at all to the seraphim. Seraphim literally means the burning ones. Here are these ones that are burning. Burning in their zeal. Burning in their, in their work, as it were, of worship unto the Lord. A class of angelic being. Here are the attendants. They seem to be the attendants to the throne of God. And as we look at these heavenly worshipers, we look at these heavenly worshipers, we can learn something about what our earthly worship is to be like as well. Instructions for us here are these burning ones. Each one had six wings. With two, they covered their face. With two, they covered their feet. With two, they flew. Even in the description here, we have something of what the worshiper is to look like. With two wings, they covered their face. Uh, overwhelmed even these angelic beings with the divine glory, a sign of reverence. A sign of reverence as they would hover their wings over their very faces. With two wings, they covered their feet, their holy humility, conscious of the depths that they were below the infinite God that was so, so, so high. And with two wings they flew, their sanctified service, ready at God's bidding to go here, to go there, to do whatever it is that God commanded them to do. So worshipers, we learn from the seraphim. We learn from the seraphim that worshipers must be subservient to the Lord. Worship is about him. There is so much of modern worship in so many churches today that are man-centered. Entertainment about man. How can we keep man's attention? No, the, the focus of worship is not upon how it makes me feel, but it's our reverence. It is the reverence that we are to give and the awe that we are to have as we come into the very presence of that holy God. So the seraphim teach us that if we're going to worship correctly, this worship that is so essential, that we must be subservient to the Lord. But the worshiper ascribes praise to the Lord. Each one was crying to the other. It's like a, what do you call these choirs that, antiphonal or something, that they, they sing back and forth one to the other. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, the Lord of glory. Notice 
how Lord is spelled here? The Lord of hosts, all capitals. Here's Jehovah. Here's Jehovah of hosts, Jehovah of armies. This one who is the commander-in-chief that has all power at his disposal to command, to do whatever it is he desires to command them to do. And this is Jesus, remember? This is Jesus upon the throne. And now, not only is he the sovereign king, but he is now Jehovah. He is Yahweh. He is that covenant name of God. That name that is the unique name of the one true and living God here to Jesus. But holy, holy, holy. Holy, holy, holy. word holy speaks of transcendence. The word holy speaks of that which is utterly and completely different and distinct. The holiness of God certainly is that God is free from sin. We understand that for sure. But the holiness of God goes beyond just his inability to sin and his separation from sin. The holiness of God is his infinite separation from everything. The transcendence of God. The distinctiveness of God, the uniqueness of the one true and living God. There is no God like unto our God, Isaiah says. The uniqueness. We sometimes in theology will speak that God is wholly other. He is wholly other, W-H-O-L-L-Y. He is completely different, completely distinct from anything and everything else. He's infinite, the transcendence of God. How high is God? How high is God? Higher than you think he is. How great is God? Greater than you think he is. We cannot conceive. We cannot conceive about the infinity, the uniqueness of this one who is the true and living God, holy, Holy, holy. I know that there are hymns, one hymn particularly, that plays upon this chorus of the seraphim to celebrate the Trinity, God in three persons, blessed Trinity. And I believe, I believe in God in three persons. I believe in the blessed Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We make that confession week after week and day after day in our heart of hearts. But while I believe in the Trinity, I dare say this is not a Trinitarian statement. The Hebrew language will use repetition as a way of expressing a superlative idea. Repetition, a way of expressing a superlative idea. So the repetition of holy holy, holy, is speaking here of that superlative, that elative, that supreme, that extreme holiness that is here being directed. Remember the one that they're directing it to in this context is Jesus, the Son. But Jesus said, I'm the one. I'm the one to whom the seraphim were singing that Isaiah saw exalted upon the throne, that infinite holiness, that infinite difference, the distinctiveness, the uniqueness 
of our God, how foolish it is to bring God down, to bring God down to our level, to make him just common and ordinary. This is what the heathen did. The judgment was going to come upon the people because they profaned the name of the Lord. The idea of profaning there is to make it common. And God would not tolerate his name being made common. We're not to take the name, the person of the Lord in vain. We read that in the law today. Because that name, the person of God, is absolutely unique. The highness, the infinite glory of the one true and living God. The whole earth, the whole earth is full of his glory. Literally, the fullness of the earth is his glory. The fullness of the earth is his glory. The word glory in the Old Testament particularly is not talking about some abstract and mysterious thing. We think of a shining light or something in glory. That's there, I suppose. But the primary idea of the word glory is assets, accomplishments, the glory, the heavens declare the glory of God, the assets of God. Here is this creation that testifies to the power of God and the work of God. It's all His, and the fullness of the earth is His glory. Everything we see, everything we see here now is evidence of this transcendent God making Himself imminent with His people. But everything we see, everything that we can see in this old creation testifies to the reality of God, to the power of God, to the preservation of God of his creation. Oh, I know when we look at this old world and we see the darkness and we see all the turmoil, in times like these, we would never admit it verbally. But do we wonder sometimes in our hearts, where is God? Where is God in all of this? How can all this be? When doubts come, when doubts come as to whether Christ is still upon his throne, just look outside. If you can see a tree, if you can see the grass, if you can see the snow, if you can, if what, the earth is the fullness of his glory. He made it all. He preserves it all. Oh, looking up, looking up, assures the soul that God is sovereign and that worship indeed is essential. But he looked in. He now looked in, and looking in awakens the soul. Looking in awakens the soul. Here's the personal effect now to this vision as it penetrated into the very being of Isaiah. He saw that doors move. He saw the smoke there in verse 4 of the glory of God manifesting itself. Now he looks in. And looking in awakens the soul, first of all, to the insignificance of self. To the insignificance of self. Isaiah saw his personal insignificance. I said, woe is me. Woe is me. A sigh of calamity, a sigh of conviction in his own conscience of contrition. He'd seen the unfallen seraphim 
worshiping this high and exalted God. He listened to their chorus of holiness unto the Lord. But who am I? Woe is me. Woe is me. It led to his confession, I am undone. More literally, I've been brought to silence. Woe is me. I have been brought to silence. I've been hearing now, I've been hearing now these seraphim proclaiming the holiness, praising God in glory, these unfallen creatures. How can I, how could I ever participate in such praise? I've been brought to silence. I'm a man of unclean lips. My lips are unclean. And I, I, I live in a peop- among a people with unclean lips. My eyes have seen the king. My eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts, Jehovah. I've seen Jehovah. Who am I? And he becomes overwhelmed with the infinite distance between himself and that majestic God. Lips that have been called to preach. And this is not... This is not Isaiah's call to the prophetic ministry. We know that he ministered during the days of Uzziah. This this chapter begins when Uzziah is dead. So this is not his call to the prophetic ministry. He'd already been called to preach. He'd already been called to minister the word. But how? Now he becomes, say, overwhelmed with his sense of insignificance, his sense of his insufficiency. How can I? How can I join? How can I be a part? Of this kind of praise, I can't render that praise. The sight of God's consuming glory had annihilated himself as he became insensitive, or he became sensitive, I should say, to his own unworth. Saw God. It's always the case. It's always the case that the nearer that we are to the Lord, the more sensitive we're going to be to our own sin. The closer we get to God and the closer we get to experience something of his holiness and of his greatness and of his power and his person, the more we become sensitive to our own inadequacies, our own smallness, our own insignificance. I've got unclean lips. And everybody around me has unclean lips. I've seen the king. So looking in, I say, first of all, awakened his soul to his personal insignificance. But it also led to the greatness of grace. For there was a cleansing for him. His heart condemned him. His heart condemned him. But God, John says in epistle number one, God is greater than the heart. Verse 6, one of those seraphim took a live coal from the altar. And he brought this live coal from the altar and he touched my lips. Those lips that were unclean. 
Those lips that could not join in the praise and the adoration of God, he touched those lips and with the declaration, thine iniquity is taken away and thy sin purged. There was a cleansing provided. Tokens here, tokens here, the symbol, symbolic acceptance here, the coal from the altar, the altar, the place of sacrifice. The fire that consumed the sacrifice now is going to be that fire that cleanses him from his guilt and from his sin. What a picture here. And God's grace. God's grace that provides a cleansing. And it ought to be indeed that when we see the Lord that we ought to be conscious of our own unworthiness. It ought to be as we have a vision of the Lord that we ought to be overwhelmed with a sense of our own insufficiency and our own inabilities. How can it be that we can feel good and feel great about ourselves when we see his holiness and we see our sin, our failures? But God's a God of grace. God is a God of grace. And here comes the means of forgiveness. Here comes the cleansing. Here comes the cleansing. Isaiah was given now lips that could praise. Lips that could serve. Looking in awakens the soul to personal insignificance, to the greatness of grace, but also awakens the soul the call to service. I heard a voice. Who will go? Whom should I send? Who will go? And Isaiah now with eagerness. A moment ago was down in the depths. Was down in the depths of his insufficiency and his inability. But now having received that grace. Overwhelmed with the reception of that grace. He can't wait. Send me. Here I am. You can almost see him waving his hands to the Lord. Here, here, here I am. Here I am. Send me. Send me. After consecration comes the net commission. Worship does not breed passivity. Worship does not breed passivity. Remember again Ezekiel, when he saw the Lord, he fell down flat on his face. And the Lord in the next chapter says, it's time to get up. Stand up, stand up, and he calls Ezekiel then to be the prophet, and he gives him a word to say. John in the Isle of Patmos, flat on his face, but the Lord says, come, I got something for you to do. Worship does not breed passivity. Worship, true worship, is going to generate within the soul that desire, to generate within that soul that desire to do what we can do in the service of the Lord. A gratefulness, a gratitude, reaction to that grace. Here's an expression of that gratitude. After the deliverance comes the gratitude. Here comes the service. He saw the sovereign Christ. And now gladly and willingly, eagerly, he gives himself to that service. Looking in awakens the soul. 
But then there was the outward look. He looked up. He looked in. And now he looks out. And looking out admonishes the soul. Admonishes the soul. First of all, concerning the discouraging mission. There was going to be a very discouraging mission that God was going to put Isaiah to. The path of service is not always smooth. And he was going to be preaching to a people that was absolutely unresponsive. A people that were disinterested. A people that were spiritually ignorant. People that were not going to respond positively to what Isaiah was going to say. How long do I do this? How long do I keep giving this message? How long do I keep talking, telling these people that just turn me off and they smear their eyes and they shut their ears and they don't hear, they don't listen? How long? Till nobody's left. You do it till nobody is left. Men are far away. There's going to be a great forsaking in the land. The land's going to be desolate. You do it until the cities are wasted without inhabitant. You do it until the houses are without a man. You do it till the land is utterly desolate. You just keep on. God does not make us responsible for the results. I think the results here are not in your hands. It is for you now to be faithful. It is for you to be diligent. It is for you to be zealous doing what I'm commanding you to do, saying what I'm telling you to say, just do it. Leave the results to the hand of God. So there is a discouraging mission. And looking out is going to reveal to us, again, more and more of the darkness of the day in which we minister. But just keep at it. We just keep at it. We just keep preaching the gospel. We just keep witnessing. We just keep proclaiming the truths of God's word. It's all we can do. The results in the hand of God. But looking out admonishes the soul concerning the power of the message and the sobering words. Paul was overwhelmed when he thought of the gospel that it was a savor of life unto life. And the gospel was a savor of death unto death. Who's sufficient for these things? Paul was overwhelmed with that. And it was the sufficiency of Christ. But the power of the gospel. To life. To death. There was going to be a hearing without a believing. What a judicial hardening here. What sobering words. You make the heart of this people fat. And without feelings, without any sensations of the operations of grace. You make their ears heavy, dull of hearing. You smear their eyes over, making them blind to grace, insensitive to grace. That's the effect of preaching. Hard words. Hard words. But 
It reminds us that sinners, when they are left to themselves, sinners, when they are left to their own incorrigible wills, are going to do nothing but turn off the gospel message. In one way or another, yeah? In one way or another, the gospel is going to have an effect upon those that hear the gospel. To reject harder and harder and harder becomes the heart. Here's the danger. Here's the danger, and I, and I, I speak to you young people here. In the providence, in the good providence of God, you're born into a home that is bringing you to church. And week after week after week after week, you'll be hearing the message of the gospel. You'll be hearing the claims of the gospel and the claims of Christ. Oh, be careful. Every message you hear will have an effect. Either rejection or acceptance. Either continuing in unbelief or fleeing to Christ in belief. Oh, be careful that you don't sit under the hearing of the gospel week after week after week after week without confessing your sins, without suing for peace, with the God of grace. There's power in the gospel even to harden the heart of sinners. But there's power in the gospel to save. A gracious saving. A remnant according to grace. But yet in it, Verse 13, but yet in it shall be a tenth. Let's not take that as a literal fraction. It's an expression here that is used for the remnant, the remnant, and again, the very fact that we use the word remnant is sometimes misleading. We always think of a remnant of something that's very small. Size is not the issue. But the remnant here is a word that speaks of God's people. Even in the midst of the darkness, even in the midst here where it seems that there's a complete rejection, but God has his people. God has his people. And the gospel will reach those people that become the holy seed. There's power to save. So we preach the gospel. And the gospel will accomplish its intended purpose. So where do we look? If these are critical days, and these are critical days, are they not, in which we live, let us seek the vision of Christ. And let us go forth in the light of that vision, Let us go forth in the light of that glory, that revealed glory, to be faithful in whatever it is that God has for us to do. 
And there's something for each of us to do, not all the same. But if you're a believer, there is a ministry. There's a congregation that the Lord puts before you to whom you must minister. We do it not in the strength of self, but in the power, in the power of God, in the call of God, in the faithfulness of God. Because we're overwhelmed with the glory of God, we serve. Now the question, where do we get a vision? Where do we get a vision of the glory of God? Not by, sit, not by sitting in a corner someplace and closing your eyes real tight to see if you can conjure up. No, that's not a vision. It's idolatry. We see the Lord in this book. Peter said concerning this word of God that is a more sure word of testimony. Say more sure word of testimony than an eyewitness account. So we have in this blessed book the vision for us to see the Lord. That's the grid through which we must look. That's the grid in which we must interpret all of the issues of life before us. Those are the lenses by which we must look at this old world. The fact that we have our Christ upon the throne. Holding the reins of his sovereignty, the reins of his kingship tightly. Everything happening according to his will. This is not just some kind of narcotic to make us insensitive to the realities that we see. That is the reality. So may God help us. May God help us as we have looked with Isaiah. We've looked with Isaiah to see what Isaiah saw. And nothing has changed. Oh, it's not the year that King Uzziah died for sure. But the Lord is still upon that throne, high and lifted up. May God give us the spiritual perception to look there in times like these. Amen. Oh, Lord. Thy word is sure, thy word is firm, thy word is unchangeable, for thou art unchangeable. And Lord, we would ask then that as we live in the day in which thou hast placed us, that we would not be so overwhelmed with the things of sight, but that we would be overwhelmed with the realities of faith. To know that thou art upon the throne, ruling and ruling well. So let thy word today have entrance into our hearts. Encourage us 
in times like these. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.